If you have your Bibles, if you would open them, please, to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. A little over five years ago, we began a study in the Beatitudes, and then we continued on to finish chapter 5, and then we studied chapter 6. But for some reason, I did not continue on to chapter 7. This is the third and final chapter of what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. Today, by God's grace, we will begin to try to remedy that and study Matthew chapter 7, which opens with the familiar words, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. I would argue that this is perhaps the best-known verse in the Bible. That is, people who have never read the Bible, people who don't believe what the Bible says, may not even believe in God, they can quote this verse without hesitation. Perhaps even with a corruption of the King James Version, judge not that ye be not judged, or lest ye be judged. They would even say, ye, ye, lest ye be judged. And in doing so, they imagine that they have God or authority on their side to hold off any view that is contrary to their own. I cannot remember all the times that people have thrown this verse in my face when I've made some type of moral judgment to tell me that they can do what they want and really I am not to judge them. I have no business saying anything about it. In our society today, intolerance is seen as the worst offense possible. And so this verse is almost sort of... uh, the theme verse for our generation, do not judge. That is, let me do whatever it is that I want. But as we shall see, this reflects, I think, a total failure on their part to understand exactly what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus defines and describes what it means to be a part of his kingdom. That's something that people completely ignore. And so if you were to ask people, do you know, you know, Matthew 7, that's where this verse comes. Do you know what comes after? Do you know what comes before? I mean, do you know about the Sermon on the Mount? Generally, they do not. If you look, by the way, at verse number 6, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. It sounds rather judgmental to me. Um, Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5, Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will be, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of these, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But he who practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And what do we find in the law, by the way? Jesus said he didn't come to do away with the law. What do we find in the law? A definition, a description of what is right and what is wrong. And what are the consequences for doing what is wrong. And again, this sounds rather judgmental to me. An important issue is that of audience. If you go back to chapter 5, In the first two verses, it sets the stage for us. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, 
Uh, generally, I think when people think of this, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus on the mountain, you have all these people, this is who Jesus is, quote-unquote, preaching to. But in fact, the them there are the disciples, those who are his followers already. This is not sort of a general sermon to the general public. Jesus is speaking to those who have decided, who have been called by him to be his disciples. And in this sermon, Jesus now speaking to his disciples, describes to them what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And the sermon is a package deal. Okay, People may quote, you know, like, blessed are the merciful, or blessed are the peacemakers. And they may or may not add, for they will be called sons of God. But conveniently, they ignore, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And then they jump to chapter 7, verse 1, do not judge or you too will be judged. And that's just not the way it works. This, this sermon is a, a whole. It is a package deal. In this sermon, Jesus describes a Christian's character, so poor in spirit, mournful, meek, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, those who are merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, those who are persecuted uh, for righteousness' sake. Then he talks of the Christian's influence, that we are the salt of the earth, we are the light of the world. And then of righteousness, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Then he talks about our piety, how we are to act. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you pray, go in your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then he speaks of ambition. If I'm a Christian, if I'm a part of the kingdom of God, what is to be my ambition? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's your ambition. What is your ambition? And this particular section ends with, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So having spoken of in the kingdom the character of a follower of Jesus, the influence, the righteousness, the piety, the ambition, now in chapter 7, Jesus turns to the issue of relationships. If we are part of the kingdom of heaven, what is to be the nature of our relationships? You see, the Christian counterculture is not an individualistic affair. As Americans, that's what we tend to think, that it's, it's, it's just me. It's my own personal relationship with God. But it is, in fact, a communal, a community affair and matter. And there are to be relations within the community. There are to be relations outside the community. There is a network of relationships uh, in which we are drawn as followers of Jesus. And in chapter 7, this is what Jesus is speaking about. He gives instructions regarding how we are to act within and without the community, how we are to act toward our brothers and sisters, how we are to act toward antagonistic unbelievers, toward our Heavenly Father, toward people in general, to our fellow pilgrims, toward false prophets, and ultimately toward the Lord Jesus, whose teaching we are committed to heed and obey. The first relationship is what we will look at today, the first and the second. It is the relationship within the community, within the church, the family of God. 
with our brothers and sisters. See, Jesus knew that the church, the community, would not be perfect. Okay? The question is, how are we supposed to act towards someone who is a brother or sister who has misbehaved, who has done something or continues to do something that is wrong? Does Jesus give us instructions about our relationship and how we are to discipline such a person? We may, in fact, discern a fault in a brother or a sister, but we have a responsibility to help and not to judge. Follow along, if you would, as I read the first five verses here in Matthew 7. Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. What we see here is that Jesus forbids two alternatives and then presents a third that is a better the Christian way. Do not judge. Odds Guinness has said, contrast is the mother of clarity. That is, when we look at the opposite, it oftentimes gives us a much clearer view of what we're looking at. So I would suggest that the place to start is to see what Jesus is not saying. We'll see in a minute what he does say, but what is he not saying? Jesus is not speaking of the judicial system, a court system. He's not saying there should not be any judges, there shouldn't be any lawyers, uh, do not judge, okay? Jesus is also not saying that we should suspend our critical faculties. These are gifts from God. I mean, otherwise, you might make the same mistake over and over and over again. When you see that something is dangerous, you avoid it, okay? When you know that there's something that's poisonous, you don't eat it. I mean, you use your critical faculties. Okay? Jesus is not saying that we are to turn a blind eye. Because if you look at verse number five, then you'll be in a position to take the speck out of their eye. Jesus does not say we are to avoid all criticism. Or that we are to refuse to discern between good and evil. As much as to say, it's all good. How do we know that this is what Jesus is not saying? Damon, are you making this up? How do we know this? Well, in part because it would contradict our nature as being human beings. We are created in the image of God, and he has given us the ability to make value judgments. This is a gift from God. Also in part because of much of the teaching from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is based on the assumption that we can and should make moral judgments. We should use our critical powers. For example, he tells his readers time and time again that we are to be different from the world around us, that we are not to be like the hypocrites in our action. Well, that requires that I'm able to discern, oh, I'm not supposed to be like that or like that person. How can we possibly obey what Jesus tells us to do unless we first evaluate what others are doing, and then we make sure that our actions are quite different. And then I'm 
quite convinced this, Jesus is not saying that we should abandon discernment because of what he says in verse number six. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. And then in verse number 15, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. So we need to be able to recognize them, to discern, to make a judgment so that in fact we can avoid them, we can watch out for them. All discernment involves the formation of judgments. Jesus is not saying surrender any ability to discern or to make any judgments. So what is he saying? Okay. I would argue that First of all, we shouldn't reach a conclusion based on one word or one verse alone. I believe, in fact, we are to be discerning and critical if necessary. I think there are two keys to understanding what Jesus is saying here. The first is the example that he gives in verses 3, 4, and 5. When you look at the speck, or why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? The judgment that Jesus forbids is that which picks at the fault of another. And I would say it's a genuine fault. They've, they've done something wrong. They're misbehaving, okay? We're not going to say that they haven't done anything, okay? But what he forbids is picking at that when in fact there are huge faults in our own lives. A speck versus a plank. As a part of the family of God, we are to watch out for each other. We are not to ignore the faults, the sins in other people's lives. We're like, well, brother so-and-so, yeah, that's just the way he is. That's just how he does things. Or sister so-and-so, that's what she does. No, we are, in fact, to watch out for each other. Paul wrote to the Galatians, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. So if there is someone who is in sin, you need to say something, okay? Jesus is not saying, you know, zip, you know, don't say anything, don't judge. Um, I think the examples he gives are quite clear. But then the key, I think, is we need to recognize who is the true judge. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Who is it that will judge you? Who will measure out to you with the same measure you have used? God the Father. It is God who judges us. We shouldn't think, oh, don't judge others because if you do, then others will judge you. That's not what Jesus is saying. You know, as harsh as you are against others, that's how harsh people will be against you. Not at all. It is the Father, okay? It is the Father who judges us. And he is the one who disciplines us. When we judge harshly or condemn a brother or sister, we are in fact trying to usurp. We're sort of pushing God aside and saying, I got this, I got this covered. And we sit in judgment on a brother or sister. Paul wrote about this a, a number of times um, in Romans 14. Um, if you get a chance to read this today, just the first five verses of Romans 14. But verse 4, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And whose servant? God's servant. 
We are all brothers and sisters. We are God's servants. And who are we to sit in judgment? And then in 1 Corinthians 4, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. We are not to be harsh. We are not to be condemning. We are to be generous in our dealings with our brothers and sisters, even in and perhaps particularly in their failures. I think this is made clearer in chapter 18 of Matthew, which people usually, oh, that's the church discipline passage. But, but listen to what Jesus says in light of judge not because God will judge you. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. So if in fact you, someone has sinned against you, you don't proclaim it to the congregation, you go to that person and, and show them. It's like, sister, brother, this is what you have done against me and you know, it needs to be made right. So it is God who judges. I think that's critical. So we are not to judge. The second thing is we are not to be hypocrites. Verse number five, you hypocrite first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus here is speaking of foreign bodies that are in your eyes, a speck and a, and a plank. And I was reminded of a friend years ago, I was a teenager, and I, back when they used to have EENTs, now it's just ENT, but eye, ear, nose, and throat doctor. And I went because I was having trouble with my nose. And this friend of mine had something in his eye, and I think it was a, a piece of sawdust, and it was there for almost a week. He could not get it out. And so we took Manong Tomas with us to the doctor and sat in the chair, and the doctor was, in fact, able to remove that piece of sawdust that was irritating his eyeball. Um, the doctor had the skill. He had the clear vision to do so, and he was able to remove it. What Jesus describes here is, in fact, quite ludicrous. You can't have a plank in your eye, okay? You can have a speck, piece of sawdust. You can't have a plank in your eye, okay? But Jesus is trying to make a point that we may have something far greater in our lives, a fault far greater than the speck in that person's eye, and we need to deal with that first. Um, by the way, the speck needs to be removed. If you've ever had anything in your eye, you know it hurts and, and you need to get it out. This fault needs to be taken care of, okay? Um, but we should not ignore what is in our own lives, in our own eye. If we do that while we're picking at somebody else's eye, it's, it's just sheer hypocrisy. We're acting as though we're qualified and there's nothing wrong with us. And that's why we're there to help them. We have the tendency to exaggerate the faults of others while minimizing the seriousness of our own faults. We seem to find it impossible when comparing ourselves with others to be objective and impartial. Just really, really difficult. 
So when we do that, we raise ourselves up and basically put other people down. We attain cheaply moral superiority, or so we imagine. And this is sheer hypocrisy, and it is wrong. Do not be a hypocrite. Instead, in the words of Paul to the Corinthians, we ought to examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith. It's actually in 2 Corinthians 13. He told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, if we judge ourselves, we would not come under judgment. Um, So the two negatives, do not judge and don't be hypocrites, then what are we to do? The positive is, see the brother or sister as a brother or sister. Verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Three times, once each in verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, Jesus speaks of your brother. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, and remember it's a package deal, Jesus had spoken of our brothers and sisters. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says you fool is in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave, the, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. We are part of the kingdom of God. We are part of the family of God. We have brothers and sisters. And this means that we are not to judge each other harshly, while ignoring the sin that is in our own lives, it, doesn't also, it also doesn't mean that we are to ignore the faults in others, if in fact they may need correction. The speck, if you wish, the trouble in a brother or sister's eye. Having dealt with our own sin, then we are able to deal with our siblings gently and graciously. Uh, Henry Nouwen has a wonderful saying, Only wounded healers have a right to heal. Only when we have dealt with our own faults are we in any way prepared to deal with others. In our attitudes and behaviors toward our brothers and sisters, we are to play neither the judge, harsh and condemning, nor the hypocrite, that is, blaming others while in fact excusing our own behavior. But rather... We are to care for them. You are my brother. You are my sister. In fact, we are to love and care for our brothers and sisters so much that we deal with ourselves first and examine ourselves before we then, in fact, turn and deal with them. If you wish, it is almost the equivalent of preparing for surgery. First, you wash your hands. You make sure that you're clean before you go into surgery. Before I even think of speaking to a brother or sister, I, in fact, need to get my act together myself. Otherwise, I am being a hypocrite. Something to consider, one person has written, faults are thick where mercy is thin. When our mercy is thin, 
It might be a good indication that there is something we need to deal with in our own lives. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So this is the first relationship in this chapter on relationships. The second is our relationship toward antagonistic unbelievers. Verse 6. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to, the, to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. Coming after the command to not judge, again, which is generally misunderstood, it's really quite startling to hear these words from the lips of Jesus. In a sermon, of all things, you know, if he said this as an aside or he was angry, but in fact he says, do not give to dogs what is sacred, do not throw your pearls to pigs. We may be put off by the language. This doesn't seem worthy of the Lord Jesus. But you may remember that Jesus referred to Herod as that fox, to the scribes and Pharisees as whitewashed tombs and brood vipers. Jesus isn't name-calling, let's be clear. He's referring to the nature of their behavior. Herod was acting like a fox, cunning. The scribes and Pharisees were like tombs, white on the outside but inside full of dead men's bones. And they were acting like a group of snakes, imagery that goes all the way back to Eden when the serpent tempted at uh, Eve. It's the same way when Jesus speaks of dogs and pigs in this verse. And we need to recognize that when he speaks of dogs, he's speaking in the ancient world in that context. He's not talking about household pets, lap dogs, you know, dogs that give us great affection. He's speaking of wild dogs, which were common in the ancient world. Um, they scavenged in town dumps. They were actually quite dangerous. In Psalm 59, David speaks of bloodthirsty enemies, and he uses the same language. They return at evening, snarling like dogs, and prowl about the city. They wander about for food and howl if not satisfied. Like pigs, dogs, by the dietary law, were unclean animals. And both are mentioned together, interestingly enough, in 2 Peter 2.22, dogs and pigs. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. Jesus is speaking of their behavior. And I would argue that he is not speaking of unbelievers in general, or even those that we would say are great sinners. Oh, that's a really bad sinner, so... Don't share the gospel with that person. Don't, don't give what is sacred or holy to such a person. I think that he is referring to those whose hearts have been hardened against the gospel, who have had ample opportunity to hear it, to receive the good news, and they have decisively and defiantly rejected it. John Calvin wrote this about that. It ought to be understood that dogs and swine are names given not to every kind of debauched men or to those who are destitute of the fear of God and of true godliness, but to those who by clear evidences have manifested a hardened contempt of God so that their disease appears to be incurable. When Jesus says that we are not, in fact, to 
give dogs what is sacred. He's not speaking of unbelievers. How then could we share the gospel? But to those who have hardened their hearts. When Jesus sent his disciples out, he gave them the following instructions. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If not, then let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves, therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Sheep, wolves, snakes, doves, all pointing to their behavior. And it brings us back to the focus of Matthew 7, that is relationships. The first is our relationship within the community, our brothers and sisters, that we are not to judge them harshly. It's interesting, I think in the first one, you have a case where people, they really want to help. They want to help. Here, brother, here, sister, there's something wrong in your life. I want to help you. I want to fix this out. Let me pull that speck out of your eye. Here in the second relationship, that is with antagonistic, hardened unbelievers, again, we find people who are eager to help, this time to convert them. Here, let me convert you. I think in both cases, the people Jesus speaks of are being pushy. Here, Let me take that speck out of your eye. Here, let me share the gospel with you. Let me convert you to the truth. I think in both cases, they they actually do want to help in the deepest sense. Some people would tell us that we are to share the gospel at every opportunity. But I would argue that this implies a lack of discernment. Almost a total lack of discernment. I don't know that I've ever told this because it's something quite embarrassing, but when I was quite young, I think maybe six, seven, eight, like that, in the Philippines, we had a station wagon, um, and my father had been given a bunch of tracts and uh, religious literature, and so as we were driving from Manila back to our uh, hometown, Baguio, my dad had me in the back and put up the window and had me throw these out on the highway, just indiscriminately throw them out for people. Um, total lack of discernment. You know, and if you think you should share the gospel with everyone every time you talk to them, then in fact you're not being very discerning. The result may be that in fact some of those people will become hardened to the gospel. The command to not judge doesn't mean that we don't think. And so it is here. I love what one writer has said about this. Jesus' methods of assistance and evangelism in the Sermon on the Mount seems curiously cautionary, unaggressive, and to be so many species of non-positive thinking. Jesus would not have made a very good car salesman. How is the gospel going to grow if we don't push it? We are not to judge. We are to be discerning not to judge uncritically, and neither are we to share the gospel without discernment. That's why we are to be as shrewd as 
serpents, snakes, and innocent as doves. And Proverbs 9 we read, Do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Oh, so there are certain people I can rebuke and there are certain people I should not rebuke. A wise person will in fact accept the correction. A mocker, a fool will totally reject it and will hate you. So here we come to the beginning of chapter 7 and the Lord willing we will continue until we finish this chapter. And it opens with the familiar do not judge. But to understand this we must understand the rest of Matthew 7 and we need to see it as part of the Sermon on the Mount. It is a sermon not for the general public but for those who are followers of Jesus. I'm just amazed at how people have taken certain parts of the Sermon on the Mount and embraced them Uh, for political reasons, if nothing else, blessed are the peacemakers, Uh, but they don't take the rest of it. And so it is with verse 1, do not judge. Uh, Well, let's go back to chapter 5 and talk about the law and the prophets. This chapter is about our relationships because we are a part of the kingdom of God, the family of God. We're not a mere collection of individuals. We're not a herd, if you wish, or a family. And so our relationships begin with discernment and the avoidance of hypocrisy. The avoidance of hypocrisy. And then we embrace our brothers and sisters as, in fact, our brothers and sisters. We are not to push our judgments on them. I know better than you do here. Let me fix you. Let me get that speck out of your eye. And we're not to push the gospel on those who will not listen. This is what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God, a follower of Jesus. So, Damon, what are you saying about unbelievers, those who are antagonistic? Should we do nothing? Do we not say anything about God to them? Uh, In the Church of England, uh, in the Good Friday Liturgy, This is one of the prayers. I think it's appropriate for what we're looking at. Let us pray for all who have not received the gospel of Christ, for those who have never heard the word of salvation, for those who have lost their faith, for those hardened by sin or indifference, for the contemptuous and the scornful, for those who are enemies of the cross of Christ and persecutors of his disciples, for those who in the name of Christ have persecuted others that God will open their hearts to the truth and lead them to faith and obedience. We can, we should, we must pray for such people. We can't say, oh, they're hardened. I'm not going to share what is sacred with dogs or pearls before swine. Okay, but you can pray for them. You should pray for them. We must pray for them. I would remind you here at the end, once again, that the Sermon on the Mount is a package deal. And so we are not to judge, we are not to be hypocrites. We are to embrace our brothers and sisters. Because earlier in chapter five, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Excuse me, be shown, by whom will they be shown mercy? 
By God the Father. Do not judge or you will be judged. By whom? By God the Father. It all ties together. And then in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts. Who, who, who will forgive us our debts? God the Father. As he forgives our debts, we also will forgive our debtors. Matthew 7 is, is a wonderful chapter. But as we continue our study, we've begun in verse number 1, but as we will continue, you'll see that this is one of those chapters where people pick and choose those things that they like and avoid the rest. And that's simply not the way we are to treat Scripture. Jesus gave this sermon as a whole to his disciples. And we should listen. We should take it to heart. Let's pray together. Our Father, there is a part of us that would rather simply take this statement, this command, as absolute. We are not to judge, period, ever, anyone. It lets us off the hook. We don't have to be discerning. We don't have to think. This isn't how you made us as human beings. And now that you have remade us, you are remaking us, we have to use the gifts that you've given us. The abilities were made in your image to think critically, to be discerning. You've brought us into your family. We have brothers and sisters. We are to treat each other that way, with love and affection. And if necessary, we need to take the speck out of someone's eye. But to do so, we must examine ourselves before we jump on someone else for some real or perceived error or fault in their lives. You are the judge. You are the one who shows mercy. You are the one who has forgiven our trespasses. We do pray for those who seem hardened against the gospel. May we not imagine that through some great argument we can convince them to become Christians. We're not, we're not to throw what is sacred to dogs or pearls before pigs. But we do pray for them that you would open their hearts to receive your truth. Only you can do this, we cannot in our enthusiasm to be your children. Get energized and we want to fix things. We want to fix our brothers and sisters. We want to fix the unbelievers. In a sense, we push you aside and we forget that we are the children and you are our father. Pray that you would guide us in the weeks to come as we go through this chapter and see how important our relationships are. and how discerning we are supposed to be as your children. Thank you for bringing us together today. It's the beginning of a new week. We pray that your spirit and grace would go with us. May we have a sense that wherever we are, you are there with us. 
We thank you for your love. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.